Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as you know, or many of you may know, throughout the year of 2022, our emphasis as a church is being better together. It is asking God uh, in his great design for the church and bringing together a community of people uh, that are called not simply to Christ, but in that relationship with Christ, also called to one another. What does it look like for us to live out being better together? And so we've quantified that in kind of four ways. How do we measure that? Uh, I think a lot of it is displayed through church members like the Stoffers. We want to be better together by worshiping together on Sunday mornings, by growing together in equip classes and in mission community groups that meet all throughout our city. We want to be better together by serving one another, be that on a team or outside of this Sunday gathering. And we want to live on mission together. And so today, as we kind of have like this third installment of this sporadic Better Together series, we're considering what it looks like to live on mission together. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Now, as you know, our mission statement at the Oaks is that we exist to glorify God and make disciples by bringing restoration through the gospel to Cincinnati and the world. And it's on banners that we have. It's on our website. We often say it in starting point class. But what does it actually look like to bring restoration through the gospel? Uh, that term is general by nature. It's general for a reason, to bring restoration but we also want to be able to consider what does it really look like for the gospel to restore? It looks like people sitting under the word of God, being challenged and encouraged by the word of God, much like we do every single week. It looks like speaking to the Lord in prayer. It looks like serving the poor. It looks like sharing the greatest message that has ever been given, that any ear could hear and that any mouth could speak. It is to bring restoration to Cincinnati and the world by sharing the good news of the gospel. And so not only are we going to dive deep into what it looks like, my desire is that you would be encouraged, challenged, excited, given a new sense of urgency to carry this gospel message to your family, to your friends, to your roommates, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, and to the city that we get to call home. So as we look at Luke chapter 14 today, here's my desire, is that we would each see that we are personally invited to follow Christ and also to carry his message to the world. We are personally invited to follow Christ and to carry his message to the world. Now, the passage that we will study today won't simply stay in the text. It isn't uh, an intellectual exercise, but something that I hope that each one of us will put to practice this week, that this text would take root in our hearts and it would cause us to think about tomorrow differently than perhaps we would have before. As you walked in, you probably noticed that there were a couple cards on your seat. Look like this. I want you to go ahead and grab those right now. And maybe you put them under your chair. I want you to go ahead and take those cards, and I want you to set them right there in that passage where Luke 14 is. Maybe you put it in your notebook, your journal, where you're taking notes. You set it in kind of the pages of your Bible. Because what I want you to know is that the Lord is at work right now in the hearts of people that aren't in this room. There are people in the sovereignty of God that call you friend, brother, sister, son, daughter, because God has placed you in their life that they would hear the good news of the gospel. And so at the very end of our gathering today, after we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to have an opportunity to write down specific names of people that God has placed in your life. 
that the Lord has put in your life, that you would be praying for them. Perhaps you're the only person praying for them. That God would give you boldness to share the gospel message, to invite them to Easter next week, to ask if they want to begin reading through the book of John with you. That you would write their name on that card and then after communion, that we would stand up together as a church, that we would pray over those individuals by name and that we would come and we would drop that card into the baptism trough in front of me. With bold faith, asking God that he would bring people to faith in Christ. That those who are currently biologically our brother and sister would become spiritually our brother and sister. That those who we live next door to, that we simply know as neighbors would become a part of the family of God. That those who are blind and walking in darkness, separated from God and living a life that is actually marked by death would come to know life in Christ. And so it's almost like getting to gaze upon a beautiful treasure yet again as we look at Luke 14 to see that at some point, if you're a believer, there was a moment that this message became personal to you, that you passed from death to life, from darkness to light, and that there are people in your life that, man, you have the greatest message that they could ever hear, and we get to invite them into a relationship with the living God. And so we're going to see that unfold in Luke chapter 14. We're going to spend the most of our time in verses 16 through 24, but I kind of want to get a head start, maybe a running start, uh, because the context of this passage is so important. So we're just going to kind of read verses 1 through uh, 16 together and make some comments. Verse 1, Luke 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, a lot of details here that are going to become important to us. So here, Jesus has been invited on a Sabbath day. That, for the Jews, was a Saturday, a day that you do not do any work. It is a day of rest set aside for worship. And Jesus is invited to go not only to one of the religious leaders' houses, but a religious leader of the religious leaders. And so he's invited to their house. Now, we don't know in this scenario if uh, this guy is being genuinely hospitable, or if this is kind of a setup, another opportunity to test Jesus, maybe to discredit him in front of other people. But we do see from this passage that they are watching him carefully. And we almost know for certain what happens in verse 2 is a setup. It says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, a man with dropsy, this was kind of a skin disease. It would have been very painful Uh, It would have made him an outcast. So the fact that there is this man with this horrible disease who is at this party with kind of the who's who of religious leaders almost feels like this has all been staged to set up Jesus. But what you're going to see is that Jesus actually uses this as an opportunity to teach them about his character, his goodness. And so in verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers, those who knew all about God's law, And the Pharisees, the religious elite, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, He's saying, you know what, is it okay for for me to heal this guy, even though perhaps you would say that would be doing work and that would break the law of God? But also God is compassionate. God is kind. He is merciful. Am I not reflecting the character of God as I heal this man? And and don't bow down to your man-made laws, and what do we see? They don't really know what to say as he puts them on the spot. So verse 4 says, but they remained silent. So then Jesus does what he does. Then he took him, the man with dropsy, and he healed him and sent him away. 
And then he examines the hearts of the Pharisees. He says, And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. See, Jesus put them on the spot, and he said, Look, you want to try to discredit me for rescuing this man who was in need, who had this terrible skin disease, and yet which one of you do not care more about your own reputation or your own property to do something about it? And yet you would not care enough about this man that he might be rescued, that he might be restored. And yet the good news in this passage is that Jesus does care. As you look at that man who has dropsy, do you not see something of yourself? Do you not see him almost as a representative of we who are born in a sinful state, separated from God, who have this great trouble that is more than skin deep, but a sickness of the soul, that we rebel against God and are deserving of eternal punishment and wrath. And then it is Christ who comes along, pays the price of our sin, the punishment we deserved on the cross, who comes to us, heals us, and says, now go, live differently. You see, there is the gospel in this passage, that this man would be restored, that he would have life in Christ's name, that he would be now sent out. And yet Christ is not done teaching these Pharisees. So verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited. Now Jesus often told stories, tells parables. Stories are so good because in a way they kind of bypass the firewall of the senses that we put up. Uh, whenever we know that someone's talking about us, whenever we could potentially be convicted. And so here Christ is going to tell a story, kind of with their defenses down, and then he's going to say, is this not your heart? Is, it not, is this not also you? And so he tells a parable, verse 7, to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is interesting because this is probably what's taking place in this group. Everybody wants the best seat at the table. They want to be seated next to the host, the guest of honor. And so here they're going in and they're kind of waiting and trying to say, okay, how can I get that seat at the table? And then Jesus says, you know what? It would be much better for you to be humble, to go and take the lowest seat and then be invited into a seat of honor. Now you could be thinking, all right, so now Jesus is kind of giving sociology tips, right? How to make a, a good impact, a, you know, a social gathering. That's not what is taking place here. He's again revealing the pride of the heart that so often clouds us whenever we recognize our need for God. And so he, here he is, he's saying, don't, don't jockey for position. Don't try to take that place of pride. Humble yourself and then you will be exalted. This takes great humility to recognize our need for the Lord. And then Jesus turns to the person who had invited everyone, to the host in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. He gets to the motive of the heart, right? Let me invite people 
who will give me the best seat whenever I go to their house, who will think well of me, who will see all my power and riches, and man, they'll think great of me. He says, no, don't just invite people that you would be repaid. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's saying how you live matters. The way you treat people matters. Ultimately, the humility you have and the motivations of your actions will ultimately be exposed on the day of judgment. And so your life now matters. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding before where the best man speech kind of goes too far or, you know, the DJ just doesn't know how to transition and things are getting kind of awkward and there's a lot of tension, like I imagine that's kind of how this house, uh, you know, party feels right now. You know, Jesus is invited in and then there are all these Pharisees here and he's like, you know what, all you guys who are trying to find the best seat in the house, you're wrong. That exposes your heart. You're proud. Not, not only that, this guy who is hosting the party for us, we see that he's basically invited us all here to make himself look good. And really, there should be a lot of people in this room that don't deserve to be there. And so, you know, everybody's kind of like, wow, this is really taking a turn. Like, what's well, for dessert? And so then, I think feeling some of that tension, verse 15 comes along. When one of those who reclined at the table, one of the guys that's sitting there with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He tries to cut the tension with the knife of this statement that I think honestly depicts the sentiment of most people in America. You know what? We might not always have the best intentions whenever we invite people over and uh, often we think too highly of ourselves and we want the, the right seat at the table, but you know what? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It will all work out. I'm a pretty good person whenever you compare myself to other people. And, you know, I try really hard, even though I don't, I don't get it right. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We'll all end up in the kingdom of God, right? So let's, let's just kind of move on to the next subject. And yet Jesus loves this man too much to let him to continue to think that everyone will just enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus loves this man too much and the people that are in that room to believe that the heart doesn't matter in its posture toward God, but that there is actually a personal invitation to have a relationship with God that matters. And as we say this, even as we characterize the fact that this is the belief of probably most people in our culture, we don't say that to pat ourselves on the back we don't say that to, to somehow just point out where other people are wrong. We say that so that we would be filled with the compassion of Christ and that our hearts would break over people who are dreadfully wrong. And unless someone tells them otherwise, they will go into a Christless eternity and experience eternal punishment. You see why this matters? Do you see why it's loving here for Jesus to go a step further to correct this man and perhaps the ideology of every single person in the room. You see why it's loving to not simply write down someone's name on a card, but to commit to praying to them that God would give you an opportunity so that you could share the gospel with them. Do you see why it matters that perhaps someone is creating questions in someone's heart right now, and this afternoon you would knock on their door and say, hi, I'm from the Oaks Church. We have a gift for you. Is there any way I can pray for you today? And that that would be the moment that they realize that God is pursuing them. 
And so here Jesus, he's going to say kind of three things about those who enter the kingdom of God. That they receive an invitation from God. Not only do they receive an invitation from God, but they address the excuses that we often have to coming to God. There's going to be a moment of repentance that we realize the things of this world cannot satisfy like Christ can. And then third and finally, we, we respond to that invitation with faith. And so let's continue through this passage here, picking up in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, here we see that Jesus is, he's explaining about the kingdom of God, and he's going to compare it to a great banquet. Now, sometimes whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, it can be difficult to know what that means. But a kingdom simply is wherever a king reigns. And so to enter the kingdom of God is to say, you know, I'm not king of my own life anymore. I recognize that Christ is king of my life and to come under his rule. And to submit to the rule of Christ where Christ reigns, for Christ to reign in your heart is to become a part of the kingdom of God. And so what does it take? What does it look like for someone to enter the kingdom of God, to come under the rule of Christ? Well, he, here he compares it to this banquet. And he said, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. That's kind of the first general invitation. During that time, it was pretty common for someone to send out an invitation to a banquet that they were giving. And it was like a save the date, but with no date. So they would just say, hey, this is coming. It's in the future, but I've got to make arrangements. We've got to kill the fattened calf. We've got to make sure that, you know, everything is ready for us to host this party that you would come to. So there was just kind of this general invitation. But then there was a personal invitation that would come later. In verse 17, it says, and at the time for the banquet, everything's ready. He sent his servant to say to those who had already been invited, come for everything is now ready. There was this moment of personal invitation. Now, I want you to see the parallels to the gospel here in this parable that Jesus is telling. First, it says that this man gave a banquet, which means that everything that was required and everything that would be, would be there would be paid in full by the host, by the master of the house. There would be nothing required of those who would come and attend who would come and enjoy the banquet, of those who would enter the kingdom of God. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Christ has paid in full everything required for us to enter into the kingdom of God. That Jesus in his mercy took on flesh to pay the fullness of our sin. That in his obedient life, that he being fully righteous on the cross would take and accredit that righteousness to us, to every single person who would believe. God has paid it all. And so here he says, the man, he just gave this banquet. Then he personally invites. Each one of us, if you have trusted in Christ, you were personally invited. Whether it was just kind of through this discontentment within your soul that caused you to pick up a dusty Bible and begin reading the book of John, whether it was through the loving conversation of a friend, a gospel tract on your doorstep, a college ministry, a sermon that you heard, there was a moment in which you didn't just believe, okay, there's a God out there he controls everything, uh, or, or maybe he just thinks good of me. But no, this invitation became personal to you. And yet what we will see is that some accept, accept this invitation, 
But others reject this invitation and instead make excuses. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. It says, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. This second movement is addressing the excuses. So first they receive the invitation, but now we must address the excuses. And there are three given. One guy says, hey, I just bought a field, so I need to go look at it. Just going to go look at dirt. So suit yourself. That sounds great. Next guy, he says, I bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go tend to them. The the third guy says, I've just gotten married. You know, so he doesn't say, this great banquet. Like, can my wife come too? That sounds wonderful. And he says, you know, that'd be too much of a hassle. I'd have to rearrange the schedule. No way. And whenever we think about a banquet, like in that time period, this word that is described as a banquet isn't just simply like a dinner party or a wedding reception. This is like six days where all your food is provided, entertainment is there. It is like an all-inclusive vacation that this guy has just invited people to, and yet they give excuses. And while the excuses that we encounter in our culture, or perhaps if you're not a Christian right now, that you would give, they might not be five yoke of oxen or You recently bought a field, but the underlying factor is all the same. For the first guy, it's his present responsibilities and his future possibilities. I got this field. I'm responsible for this. I'm too busy here. I got things going on. I mean, what what if something starts to sprout? What if there are weeds? I got to take care of that. Second, the the guy with the oxen. Man, those are his possessions. He's proud of those. He's got to take care of them. He's got to hold on to them. If something happens, if he goes to this banquet for six days to those oxen. Sixth, relationships. The guy's like, I've I've married a wife. This new commitment, this thing really matters to me, right? I don't know if I can invite her. I don't know what she'll think about it. So, you know, I just got to reject this invitation. Now, what I want you to see is that receiving the invitation was not necessarily a call to completely forsake those things, but rather to reprioritize them. I think what we find in this passage is that it exposes our idols. What is it that we love more than Christ? What is it that if we were called to give up or to reprioritize in our life for following Jesus, we would simply say, not worth it? Man, I like this relationship, even though I know it doesn't please God. What if if following Jesus changes my five-year plan? Uh, You know, I I just can worry about that later in life, these things, while not being bad in themselves, are not as good as God, and yet break the first command that we would have no other gods before Him. And so here we see these excuses exposed. First, the one of present responsibilities and future possibilities. This guy had a new field that he had to take care of. How often do you hear someone saying, you know, I'm just, I'm just too busy right now. I've got this exam coming up, you know, and I just really need to focus on this I really need to focus on, you know, make a good, a good impression at work to even focus on spiritual things right now. And yet here we see this invitation come and the excuses, no, I, I got to take care of this field. Even as Christians, are we not tempted to, to get our present responsibilities and our future possibilities distorted and, and put them in front of Christ? 
Are we not tempted to say, you know what, I know that I should spend time with the Lord. I know God's word is like the bread of life, but I better get into work early because there are other people there who are also trying to get the same promotion, and I know that matters. And man, is Christ not worth it? If we are called to follow him, be it for the first time and you're sitting here saying, God, I know that I need to reorient my priorities to put you first, or you're sitting here and you've been following the Lord for the first time and you're saying, you know what, I've been, I've been disobedient because I've cared so much about things that may be temporary, things that matter to me and not to you. The second idol and excuse that is given is possessions. This guy has five oxen. Well, we don't know if maybe he just got his tax return, goes down to the animal dealership, he's feeling good, buys five, not four oxen. But man, they eat a lot. He's got bills to pay now. He's got a mortgage. There's a lot of responsibility that he has whenever it comes to the possessions that he has. Now he finds himself just kind of insulating his life with stuff that is really a way to worship his own idol of comfort and convenience and control and power. And he's saying, if I could just kind of gather this stuff, then maybe I can buy enough stuff to impress other people or to take my mind off of the fact that there is an eternity, that there is a banquet that I've been invited to. And yet whenever we are calling people to trust in Christ, we are calling them to trust the Lord in a way that they can let go of the possessions of this world. That we would treasure Jesus so much and find him of infinite worth that he would pry our fingers off of the idols that we often cling to for control because God is sovereign and he's in control. Uh, That we wouldn't seek the power of this world that comes from positions, but that we would ultimately see God as the one who has all power, that we would be meek and lowly. That instead of seeking the approval of our coworkers or our boss or someone who, who would say, you know what, I want to I date you, I want to go out with you, I think you're super smart. Instead of seeking the approval of the world that we would say, in Christ, I have all the approval I would ever need. What is it that we are seeking from our possessions that we are only designed and created to find in Christ? That we could say, this is not a good enough excuse to keep me from following Jesus. Uh, there will be people that maybe you talk to today or this week who are, who are trusting in their possessions and yet have found them weighed and wanting, unable to satisfy. How good is it that we can say, you know what? We trust a God who not only owns it all, but cares for us so deeply that he will never let us lack. I'm reminded of Psalm 34 where it says, even, even the lion's children suffer lack, and yet those who know the Lord lack nothing. Christian, what do we communicate to the world whenever we love our possessions and stuff and find comfort in them, and yet we're telling them that they can leave everything behind to find life in Jesus? What are we communicating whenever we love these things, when we love the world and the things that it provides? This is convicting, and yet we should be a people of generosity because Christ has been so generous to us. We should be a people who freely give that the gospel would go forward. We're able to to put these bags together and to create two weeks of just Christ-like hospitality in the life of our church over the next two Sundays because of the generous giving of of you guys. You say, you know what? I, I believe that whenever Christ says, wherever my treasure is, my heart will be also. So I want to give generously so that we can impact this city for the name of Christ. 
We don't simply say, I don't want to find my identity in my possessions, but we say, I want to give what God has given me to make him known. Then the third excuse is addressed relationships. He says, I'm recently married. I'm a newlywed. This kind of changes my responsibilities right now. And yet he uses this as an excuse. I mean, this would basically be like a second honeymoon. Six days of of just complete all expenses paid, food, hanging out with friends. What a great opportunity. He says, you know what, I, I can't go. I got this relationship, and you know, I don't know if my wife would want to go. I don't really want to ask her. We don't want to talk about it. We're just, you know, this relationship has become an excuse. And yet we'll see that many people, they like the idea of Jesus. They love the security of eternal life that he provides, the hope that only God can give. And yet whenever they hear what Jesus demands of their relationships, they would say, no, not worth it whether it's what Christ demands of your purity, uh, what Christ demands of sex only being within the confines of a marriage, whether it's what God demands about the way that you view other people, what God demands of the kind of person that you would be in a relationship with right now. Has that become an excuse for you that you would reject entering the kingdom of God as we see in this passage? Would a relationship that you are in right now with someone that may not even know you or think of you five years from now cause you to forfeit eternal life with Christ? That's the case for this guy right here. And these three excuses will not only keep people from following Jesus and entering the kingdom of God, but they will keep you from sharing this good news with others. You'll be so consumed by your current responsibilities and the future possibilities that, man, you just don't even think about investing in someone that they may come to the kingdom of God. You become so consumed with your possessions and gaining more of them that you forget and you've forgotten to show people the wealth of knowing Christ. You become so consumed with a relationship perhaps are protecting a relationship that has become impure, that you would not invite them into a relationship with Christ. And yet we see that the gospel dismantles these excuses and invites us into a life with God that makes us whole. That instead of the current responsibilities that we often cling to, that we would become stewards of the greatest message ever given to take it to others. And that our future possibility that we have now, as uncertain as it might be, would be replaced with an eternal and secure future of knowing Christ and spending eternity with him. The, the possessions that we often seek comfort, power, approval in would be replaced with knowing Christ, that we'd find those things in him, that, that the fact that we often distort relationships would be restored by a true relationship with a living God. And that as we seek him, we not only learn to love God, but to love others as he has loved us. Christ restores, Christ makes us whole. And so how is it that we respond to the invitation? Well, we repent, right? As I was studying this passage, I was like, you know what? I think I find too much security and making sure that I've got kind of this long-term plan. I think I put a little bit too much hope in making sure that I check all the boxes and do everything just right. What does it look like to respond to this invitation, be it for the very first time 
or with a renewed sense of commitment. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. Verse 21 says, So the servant came, and he reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes to the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. He comes back and he says, Hey, these are all the excuses that I just received. And so the master of the house says, Go and invite those who are poor and crippled and blind and lame. Not only invite them, but bring them in. These people are so busted up and broken down that they can't even walk. No excuse to give. And yet, we see God say, go, servant, that you would bind them up, that you would bring them in to the kingdom of God. And is this not what Christ has done to us? Is verse 21 not a mirror for the redeemed, that we would see ourselves as those who are blind, crippled, lame, poor, nothing to offer God. No religious achievements that could make us right before his sight. No righteous works that would not simply be filthy rags in the presence of his holiness. And yet God says, go, go, my son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he sends his son to go to seek out the crippled, the blind, the lame, the poor, that we would receive that personal invitation, that he would scoop us up in his nail-scarred hands, saying, leave this behind, repent of your self-righteousness, repent of being the king over your own life, come into my kingdom. He scoops us up and brings us in. And yet, whenever we get there, we recognize there is plenty of room in the kingdom of God. Verse 22, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master says to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. He's saying there is plenty of room in the kingdom of God. There are still seats at the table. There is still room for people to come into relationship with him. So go. Go out to the highways, go to the hedges, compel people that they would come in, that they would enter into a relationship with the living God, that the house might be full. And this is good news for us. Because if you're sitting here, perhaps you've come to that place in which you realize Christ came for you when you were poor, crippled, lame, and blind, scooped you up, healed you, restored you, and yet now this message has been entrusted to you for the world around you to hear. We often ask the question at the Oaks, who is close to you but far from God? God is sovereign over your answer to that question. Who is close to you but far from God? And how can you be the bridge for them to know the Lord? How can you bridge that gap? You see, every member at the Oaks is a missionary. And so I wanna challenge you this week specifically to live as a missionary, to consider where God has placed you, in your location where you live, in your vocation where you work or go to school, and in your recreation, where you work out, where you go to buy groceries, anything outside of home or work. I want you to grab those cards right there that you put in your journal or in Luke 14, and I want you to take an opportunity to write down specific names right now as you consider this list. Who is it that God has placed in my home, in my neighborhood? Is it an unbelieving spouse? Is it a roommate that I have? Is it my children? 
Is it my mailman? Is it the UPS guy that I kind of strike up a conversation with? Is it maybe the person that, that comes by each week to mow my grass? Or I mean, who is it that God has placed in your life, in your location? You'd say, you know what, God, give me the courage this week. I'm going to pray for them, and you give me the moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite them to Easter next Sunday. I want to ask how I can pray for them, and I'm going to listen intently so that whatever it seems that sin has broken in their life, I can say, God can restore that. Who is it in your vocation? Maybe for you it's a, a study group, classmates. It, it could be a coworker. It could be a mentor that you have that you meet with regularly. It could be clients that you serve, patients in the hospital that you can pray with. Maybe write their name. Who's in your recreation? Uh, who do you often see when you're at the dog park? You see them all the time. And you've never asked for their name. You just say, hey, I don't think I've introduced myself. I'm Terry Lee. What's your name? That's great. How long you lived here? Who do you see at the coffee shop? Who's the barista behind the counter that you talk with regularly? Would you write their name down? If you don't know their name, maybe just write a detailed description of them. A guy who, who's working remotely, he's an accountant. I can't remember his name. Would you write that down? Begin to pray for them. You see, the word here that is used for compel in verse 23, is full of urgency. It's saying, go, go, take the gospel to them that they may trust in Christ, that they would know me, that those who were once poor, crippled, lame, and blind would be sent to those who are currently poor, lame, crippled, and blind, and that they would hear the greatest news that they could ever hear, and that they would be invited into the kingdom of God. See, we are personally invited to know Christ to enter the kingdom of God and to share this message with the world. So there's a couple ways that we're going to respond to this sermon, to what we find in Luke 14. We're going to take communion together. And I ask that as we take communion, that you would use that as an opportunity to repent of some of the excuses that you're currently clinging to, perhaps that would, would keep you from fully trusting Christ, from growing in sanctification as a Christian or, or from sharing the gospel. I know I've had to do that this week. That you would use this as an opportunity to pray specifically for those who, who God has put in your life. For some of you, you'd say, you know what, these are the excuses that I'm clinging to right now. And would this be the moment that you repent and to commit your life to Christ? Say, Lord, I, I know that, that I'm crippled apart from you and yet only in you can I be restored through the death and resurrection of Christ. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. And then after the Lord's Supper, we're gonna stand up and I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith and to take the cards that you have that you wrote that name on and that as we're standing up, as we're singing, that you would walk forward and that you would place them in the baptism trough right in front of the stage. That you would stand up, people will move so that you can get by, but that you would say, you know what, God, I know that I need courage, I need boldness. Lord, help me to be obedient. Help me to share this gospel message. I want to encourage you to know that that God is already at work. The Holy Spirit is drawing. Perhaps even before you wrote their name on that card, God has been at work. And so may we join him and be obedient in this wonderful truth that he has personally invited us to follow him and that we get to share this great message with the world. Let's pray.